Shalom, and thank you for listening to sermons from Tikbat Israel, a Messianic synagogue in the heart of Richmond, Virginia. Listening to the podcast is great, but if you want the full experience, please join us Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for our worship service. We are located at the corner of Boulevard and Grove, across from the Art Museum. For more information, you can visit our website at tikvatisrael.com. There, you can support the ministry, learn more about Messianic Judaism, and contact us with any questions or comments. May Hashem bless you through the hearing of His Word. Avinu, our Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your presence this morning. We pray that you would um, speak to us by your word and encourage us um, through your faithfulness and through your Ruach HaKodesh, that we would come away different and come away um, built up as a community in you and closer to you. And in Yeshua's name we pray. Amen. So, two small children are in the back of a car, and Dad says, hey, you know what? You kids have been behaving pretty well, and you've been nice to each other. What do you say? We all go out for some ice cream. Yay! Shout the kids. That's right. So they pull up to the window, and soon they have a fresh frozen treat, one each. Dad's thinking to himself, you know, I did pretty good. Kids are happy. Everyone's getting along. One dad point for me. And then from the back, he hears a familiar tone. Hey, he got more ice cream than me. That's not... Oh, you know this one. <laughs> That's not fair. Well, says dad, searching his database for some useful counsel. You know, son, uh, life's not always fair. This was not as encouraging as he'd hoped. It's chaos, crying and shouting, and the kids are upset as well. So dad's advice wasn't helpful, but we've heard it all before, haven't we? We've most likely been on both sides of this conversation. So is it true? Is life fair? You know, this reminds me of a story. King David, toward the second half of his life, had a lot of difficulty with his many children. His son, Absalom, charmed the people right out from under him. First of all, Scripture says he could have been a model. He was just that handsome. And Scripture describes his luscious hair, which he cut once a year. It weighed like three tons or something like that. I don't know. I'm, I, I wasn't jealous reading this. I'm just, you know, relaying the, what the Scripture said. Um, uh, you like me, right? Yeah, my wife likes me. Okay. So he decided to gather some men and chariots and horses, and he would get up really early and hang around the entrance to the city gate, and he'd schmooze with the people. He'd be kissing babies, signing autographs, saying to the people, so where are you from? And they'd say, oh, I'm, I'm from the, the tribe of Dan in Israel. And Absalom would say, oh, I hear it's uh, lovely out there this time of year. Now, tell me your troubles. And then after he heard them out, he'd say, wow, you know, you have a real case. You're really going through it. But the problem with this king is that he hasn't delegated anyone to hear your concerns. And you know what? That's not fair to you. Of course, uh, you know, I'm not king like my father David. But, you know, if I were king, I would definitely make sure that you and anyone else in a similar situation would get justice. 
My name is Absalom, and I, pr- I approve this message. And uh, the people would just bow down to him and fawn over him. But then Absalom decided he would take it a step further and had a bunch of spies spread the news that he was made king in Hebron and proclaim it with a bunch of shofars and a, a parade and a giant, giant floats with his face right on them. And the news that the people had come behind Absalom, it reached King David, and he panicked. We gotta get out of here. My own son is taking over. Hurry up, or he's gonna annihilate the whole city. The whole country that wasn't with Absalom, that was with King David, they wept and they cried out, kind of like the kids in the back seat of that car. And the king, King David, left his palace and crossed into the Kidron Valley. A rejected king, humiliated, fleeing for his life, crosses into the Kidron Valley just outside the old city of Jerusalem. Absalom, his wayward son, appealing to the crowd, you know, you're not getting what's fair. You're not getting justice. Is it, is it just that David has to flee his own home to save his life from his son? I don't know. I don't know. David, he had a lot of potential, but he made a big mistake in his life with Bathsheba and with her husband. And since then, he's seen nothing but chaos in the back seat. The kids have been fighting with each other, struggling for power, control, grasping for that throne and grasping at each other's throats. Is it fair that Absalom took vengeance on his brother, Amnon, David's other son? Is it fair that Amnon violated his half-sister? Is it fair that God accepted Abel's offering but didn't accept Cain's? Is it fair that Cain became jealous so he killed his own brother? How did things get this way? They weren't always like that, right? We didn't always have this this question in our minds. When was that? Where was that? It was back in the garden, the Garden of Eden. We've been following the story of Rabbi Yeshua through the Besorah, the Gospel of John. He's identifying with the God of Israel and with the people of Israel. He's identifying with the festivals of Israel, with the story of Israel. He is the manna in the desert. He's the living water. He is all of those things. All of those festivals are fulfilled in him. We see the son of David, the son of man, the son of God, doing signs that point to his kingship, but it's a renewed kingdom from the eternal Eden. Heaven's kingdom is breaking in to the earth. We see a kind of divine reversal with Yeshua moving toward death to bring life. Yeshua is rejected to bring acceptance. Yeshua experiences injustice and abuse to bring healing. Despite the fact that he's a wanted man in Judea, he goes back there at his own peril to raise 
his friend, Lazarus, from the dead. This is the seventh and most dramatic sign of his kingship. And now we're in the second half of John's gospel, which is focused on the final week of Yeshua's life. Last week, we heard from his, his last speech, encouraging unity and love and dwelling with Yeshua through the Holy Spirit as he dwells in God the Father, being filled with his loving presence. And then we find this at the beginning of chapter 18. When Yeshua had said these things, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Let's leave that up for a second. Remember, there aren't enough books in the world to write down everything Yeshua did. So what we have in the Gospels is there for a reason. The writers of Scripture are intentional with every word. Yeshua went across where? The Kidron Valley. And where did he go into? A garden. Those places sound familiar to you? Yeah. The son of King David, who crossed into the Kidron Valley, despised and rejected, fleeing for his life, is doing the same thing that David did. Thank you, Jason. But it's it's renewed and it's reversed. Kingship and justice and fairness are redefined in the person of Yeshua. And what about the garden? Who left the garden? That would have been Adam, right? And now the son of Adam, son of Adam, which is the son of man, is entering a garden. This is the son of God, just like Adam. Adam was a son of God, right? But it's the second Adam. It's Yeshua. And he is not only from the Garden of Eden, but he spreads the garden and successfully fulfills the mission of Adam to rule over creation, to reflect God's image, to bring the knowledge of God from the garden to the ends of the earth. The narratives of Scripture show us that Yeshua is rewriting these stories to show us what is true fairness, what real justice looks like. And now we enter into the arrest, and the trials of Yeshua, which leads to his death on the tree. Let's check it out. Now Judas... Do we have it? Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Jason. Now Judas, who was betraying him, also knew the place, because Yeshua had often met there with his disciples. So Judas having taken a band of soldiers and some officers with the ruling Kohanim, that's the priests and the Pharisees, comes there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Then Yeshua, knowing all the things coming upon him, went forward. He said to them, who are you looking for? Yeshua Hanatsrati, they, they answered him, Yeshua of Nazareth. Yeshua tells them, I am. Now Judas, the one betraying him, was also standing with them. So when Yeshua said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. This is the final I am statement. John has given us two sets of seven. 
One set of seven shows the divine identity of Yeshua. He says, let's say these together. Yeshua said these in in the book of John. Number one, I am the bread of life. Number two, I am the light of the world. Number three, I am the door of the sheep. Number four, I am the good shepherd. Number five, I am the resurrection and the life. Number six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And seven, I am the vine. The other seven I am statements are just by themselves. It's just when Yeshua just says, I am, but there's seven of those as well, including this last one that we just read. And what happens when he says, I am? The soldiers who came to arrest him, what do they do? They fall to the ground. Now, where have we seen something like that before? When Abram was 99, Adonai appeared to him and said, I am El Shaddai, which means God Almighty or God the Provider. Walk before me and be pure-hearted, and I will make a covenant between us, and I will multiply you immensely or make you super great. And Abram did what? Fell on his face. That's from Genesis 17. Now it came to pass when Joshua was near Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, there was a man standing in front of him with his sword drawn in his hand. Joshua approached him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? Neither, he said. Rather, I have come now as commander of Adonai's army. Then Joshua, what did he do? Fell on his face to the ground and worshipped. Then he asked him, What is my Lord saying to his servant? You want another one? Above the expanse over their heads was something like a throne, resembling a sapphire stone. Above the shape of the throne was a figure of a human appearance. From what appeared as his waist upward, I saw glowing metal, looking like a fire encased in a frame. From what was like his waist down, I saw the appearance of fire radiating around him, like the appearance of a rainbow in the cloud on a rainy day. So was the appearance of the radiance. It was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of Adonai. I saw it, fell upon my face, and I heard the voice of the one who was speaking. This is the dramatic opening of uh, Ezekiel when he has a vision of heaven and a vision of God appearing to him on his throne. All of these examples show the reverence and awe that Abram and Joshua and Ezekiel had for the presence of God. And also, I don't know if you noticed, but all of these references contain the sacred name of God, yud heh vav translated here as Adonai. And in many English Bibles, it's translated Lord with all capitals. In Exodus 3.14, God connects this name with I am, revealing to Moses the meaning of his name. He says, yud heh vav means I am that I am. So all of the I am statements by Yeshua, followed by this seventh and final I am statement here, draw us to the connection between the I am of Israel and Yeshua the king. So they fall down. But then they arrest him. And Yeshua does not resist. He appears powerless. He gives himself in love. When Peter or Kepha tries to prevent Yeshua's arrest, 
he takes out a dagger and strikes the ear of one of the servants of the high priest. And Yeshua responds like this. Yeshua said to Kepha, put your sword back in its scabbard. This is the cup the Father has given me. Am I not to drink it? The cup, the cup that Yeshua must drink, what does this mean? Well, again, we look to the narratives of Israel to find out. This is from Psalm 75. For exaltation comes not from the east, nor from the west, nor even from the desert. For God is the judge. He lowers one and lifts up another. For in the hand of Adonai is a cup of foaming wine mixed with spices, and he pours it out. Surely all the wicked of the earth will drink, draining it down to the dregs. So what is Yeshua's cup? What is he drinking? He's drinking the cup of judgment that the wicked on the earth deserve. Not only is the execution stake physically painful, but he's taking on all the judgment of the children of Adam, all of our wickedness. That does not sound very fair. After this, we have the narrative of the court trials of Yeshua. If anything in this world should point to justice and fairness, it should be the court system, right? Yeshua willingly goes before Anas, the former high priest, and then before Caiaphas, the current high priest, then before Pilate, the civil governor. None of this is a fair trial. First, they take him in the middle of the night. And court is supposed to be when? During the day, right. Second, the trials are not conducted under proper Jewish law. They make up charges. They don't have the proper number of witnesses. Torah says you need two or three, that something is established, right? And they have no evidence. This is what it says. The Kohen Gadol then questioned Yeshua about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Yeshua answered him. I always taught in the synagogues and the temple, where all the Jewish people come together. I spoke nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who have heard what I spoke to them. Look, they know what I said. When he had said this, one of the officers standing nearby gave Yeshua a slap, saying, Is that the way you answer the Kohen Gadol, the high priest? Yeshua answered him, If I have spoken wrongly, give evidence of the wrong. But if rightly, why hit me? Then Anas sent him, still tied up, to Caiaphas, the Kohen Gadol. Yeshua calmly explains that there should be proper evidence in this trial. He doesn't fight back when he's struck, but he does advocate for himself, even though his request is ignored, just like Joseph did. He advocated for himself while he was in prison, but he didn't fight back. Look at the power dynamics here. This is the I am of Israel submitting himself humbly to judgment, trial, rejection, and ultimately to death. It seems as if, from one perspective, he's powerless, and all of this is quite unfair, but that's just the surface. Pilate went into the praetorium again and said to Yeshua, where are you from? But Yeshua gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you aren't speaking to me? Don't you know that I have the authority to release you and I have 
authority to crucify you? Yeshua answered, You would have no authority over me if it hadn't been given to you from above. For this reason, the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. The literal court trials of Yeshua should give us perspective in our trials, our figurative trials, and and, and the idea of fairness. Fairness and justice in our trials and tribulations, it comes from the hand of God. It's not about what's fair in our eyes, but it's about God rescuing us. What's fair for us, really, is to receive the punishment that's on Yeshua. What's just is for our sins to be accounted for. What's fair is for us to pay our debts to God, for our unforgiveness and our lust, our greed and our laziness and our disrespect and our idolatry. But Yeshua offers to pay our debts instead by giving himself, by dying on the tree. I just want to encourage us to think about our trials and the things that we go through from God's perspective. Instead of saying like the kids in the back seat, that's not fair. We can say, Lord, you are fair. Lord, you are just. You are a good judge. When we go through difficulties and trials, we can say, Lord, you are on your throne as you were when Yeshua, your son, was mistreated. When Yeshua was disrespected, you were on your throne. We can identify with the man of sorrows because it means that the great I am, the great I am understands what it's like. The I am, he went through it. And even worse, even worse than we will ever have it. Hebrews 12 reminds us of this. Therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also get rid of every weight and entangling sin. Let us run with endurance the rates set before us, focusing on Yeshua, the initiator and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and he has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary in your souls and lose heart. In struggling against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of bloodshed, as Yeshua did. Have you forgotten the warning addressed to you as sons? My son, Do not take lightly the discipline of Adonai or lose heart when you're corrected by him because Adonai disciplines the one he loves and he punishes every son that he accepts. What's truly fair, what we deserve, is for us to pay for our sins. But God does not treat us as we deserve. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. In Yeshua, in Messiah, we have forgiveness. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your gospel and and these stories that that help us when we're going through difficulty, Lord. Um, And I pray that you would would encourage your people, God, 
um, that by your love that you are still on your throne when we are going through it um, and that we have uh, the great I am as the man of sorrows that we can fix our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith, Yeshua, that we can um, be encouraged by your the fact that you did not fight back, the fact that you did not say that's not fair, but you trusted in um, in your Father. And so that gives us hope, and that gives us uh, encouragement that we can trust in you, Lord, because ultimately you turned fairness on its head, and you died for our sins. And it's not fair. It's not fair to you, Lord, but we have grace, we have forgiveness, and we have um, the fullness of eternal life um, because of your great love for us. And I pray that if there's anyone here that has not received um, received you, Lord, um, received you as the atonement for their sins, that has not received you the, um, as the, the one who died for us, that they would put their trust in you right now, even as I'm speaking, Lord, that they would um, they would sense that you are the one sent from the garden to, um, to bring true justice, to bring true reconciliation, um, and uh, that we can have forgiveness and fullness of life in you, O Lord Yeshua. And in your name we pray. Amen.